director here at Cacalico. And if you've been with us this summer or you've seen the wall of cards out there in the lobby, you've heard us talking about how we're going to be adding a third service this fall, and we've been running this and one serving campaign throughout the summer. So we have Jerry with us this morning, and he's going to share a little bit about um, the area he oversees, which is Route 56, and that's for our fifth and sixth graders. So Jerry, during the week when you're not here, what do you spend your time doing? Uh, I work for a marketing and research firm, and we're specialized in baby products. So we design strollers, swings, and high chairs, and I oversee the marketing team and also two brand teams. So during the week, you're very much in the business world. So for you personally, why this age group here on Sunday mornings? Well, I first got involved with Route 56 when my kids were this age, uh, about eight, nine years ago. And I just fell in love with this age group. Uh, to me, they're the sweet spot because they're old enough, um, intelligent enough to actually have deep conversations, but they're not so old that they think they know everything. And uh, I have older kids now, and so I'm very blessed and rewarded working with Route 56 because they actually feel like I have some knowledge and wisdom to offer them, uh, unlike my kids. So uh, I fell in love with that. What do you love about serving? Well, I love our curriculum, first of all. Our curriculum uh, was custom designed by uh, Christine Miklas, and a big thank you to her. And it steps through the whole Bible. So over the course of two years in Route 56, the kids will experience the patriarchs of the Old Testament, the wisdom of Proverbs, on through to the missions of Paul and the steps of Christ. And so I love how we've made that engaging and inviting and exciting and fun for the kids. And it makes the, the Bible really come to life for their age group. Uh, but I also just in love, I love engaging with the kids. Um, I was in first service, and um, I'm not on this week, but uh, between services, I couldn't help but go up there and just uh, connect with the kids as they were coming in. And uh, I do live a busy life and a lot of burdens, and when I walk through those doors, I, they're all put aside, and I can just focus on the kids, uh, and that's, that's the fun part. And you can see some pictures scrolling behind us from the environment. It's incredibly hands-on, creative, a lot of fun for the kids to be a part of that. So what is your desire for this ministry, for this environment? Well, we strongly believe that fifth and sixth graders are at a pivotal point in their faith journey. Up until this point in their life, most of the decisions they've faced have been made for them by mom or dad. And now they're in the preteen stage where they've got a little more independence, a little more flexibility, their parents aren't always around, so they have to start making some decisions for themselves. How they're going to act in certain situations, what they're going to say, and also what kind of friends they're going to choose. So we want to create an inviting place, a welcoming place, a place, as we call it, where they can experience the journey, kind of a tie into Route 56 and a journey that we're all in, and be able to experience what it means to live out their faith in Christ. And as a church, we sort of see Route 56 as on the front lines of a real pivotal point in, in the walk with children because statistics show that 70% of kids will walk away from their faith. And we know that if they don't get connected in Route 56, the likelihood of them taking the next step to the teen ministry is less likely and they become more a chance of that statistic. And I just like to say that if you don't have children, um, if you don't have children this age, uh, that doesn't mean you're disqualified from serving in Route 56. It's really an easy ministry. It's a fun ministry. It's a show up and play ministry. 
And um, all you need to do, do is engage with the kids. And, and I'll just say we're in desperate need for males. Not that we don't want everyone, but uh, we need some men that these uh, boys can interact with on a regular basis. Right now it's a lot of women and two men, so we could really use some men in our ministry. Thank you. This is an area you may not even realize we have. It's tucked away up in the warehouse. It meets during second service. And so we just wanted to bring this before you, let you see about an area you may not have known about previously. There's one other area I wanted to mention to you during this time. Um, this is a new area of ministry that we are just starting. It's called the Buddy System. And the idea behind this is to provide volunteers that can provide some one-on-one -on -one support with some of our kids who may have some special needs or just would really benefit from that um, needed attention on a Sunday morning. And so it allows them to be part of our ministry as well as receive the care they need. So if either of these areas are ones that um, are interesting to you or you'd love to just hear more information about, um, we would love to connect with you. You can come back out to that wall and um, after the service, and we'd love to talk with you then. Thank you. Sorry about that. I bumped the button. Years ago, I came across an article. At uh, that, that point, it was a, I think it was a, a VHS tape, but they talked about in fourth grade all these significant things that happen in your life, the way you relate, the way you function in a room, the way you relate to other people. And so we're right just past that at 56, and it's a great opportunity. And one of the things I love about Jerry's story is he said, when I come through those doors, all the challenges and struggles get set aside, and I get to pour myself into the lives of these kids. And so that's what we want for all of you. And as we're preparing for this fall, it's not just about finding people to fill slots, but we believe that the church gives you an opportunity to do something that gives you life and meaning and purpose, and, um, and you get to make a difference uh, that could last for a lifetime. So we hope you check out the wall out there, uh, the and one wall. Uh, you'll see the cars that look like this. Look over those cars. If you look them over and you're not sure where you want to plug in, just take your communication card, turn it over, and check the, the serving box, and one of our pastors will connect with you. And this next week, pastors or staff, and sit with you and talk with you about some areas that you enjoy, you might enjoy serving. You say, well, I don't know if I'm, I'm not sure if I'll find the right thing. Some of you are a little cautious, not sure if you want to find the right thing, not sure you're ready to drive in or dive in. Um, this past, the past couple of weeks, my son is engine dying on his car and he's looking for a new car. So we got to test drive some cars. And so we would go out and drive them and then decide, well, do we keep looking? And we did that a couple of times. And I won't take a poll in this room, but how many of you, the first time you got in a car when you were looking for a car, did you buy that car? Most likely, you did not. And so we want you to do the same thing with ministry. We want you to test drive, so that means you get to come to the environment, see what it's like a time or two, decide if this is a good fit for you, um, and then consider being a part. And sometimes it's the first time, and you know exactly what it is. Sometimes we try a couple of times to find one that's a great fit for you. So we invite you to be a part of that. Well, for those of you that don't know me, my name is John. I'm the lead pastor here, and... Uh, uh, it's great to have you here with us. Thank you for making your way in. I had talked to a few of you who said, it was beautiful when I was driving, and all of a sudden I drove into this monsoon over here in Reinholds, you know. Um, but we did have some lightning issues. That's why we lost the screen over here, and our musicians did a great job up here this morning. What you don't know is they lost part of what they used to prepare and use in the first service. They did not have that, and they didn't find it out until just they started the second service. So great job to our team up here leading us into God's presence 
uh, with one arm tied behind their back this morning. So thank you to all of you for your work and effort. Well, life is filled with choices, and every choice results in a decision, and decisions result in consequences. And I don't tend to find myself to be someone that makes a lot of rash, foolish decisions, but I have been guilty of pulling pranks on individuals and not thinking about the consequences of the pranks that I have pulled on people. When I was in high school, it was my senior year, and I found myself and one of my classmates um, in a classroom where some underclassmen, it was their homeroom. And we happened to be in there by ourselves. None of the underclassmen were there, no one else, just myself and this other guy, Mike. And, and um, they had the room all decorated for Christmas. They had decorations in the room. They had presents they were going to exchange with one another. They had a Christmas tree nicely decorated in the room. And we said to ourselves, we said, without putting a lot of thought into this, what if we pulled a, um, if we can switch to the next presentation there, that would be great. Um, what if we pulled a Grinch on them? Oh, I'm looking here, and it's back here behind me. Sorry about that. I'm a little disoriented. I said, what if we pulled a Grinch on them? I said, what do you mean a Grinch on them? We collected all the decorations, collected all the presents, slid a few ceiling tiles up in the classroom, stuffed them in the ceiling tiles in the room. We rigged the Christmas tree with a rope that we found to the door of the room, so you know what happened when they pulled the door of the room open, and then we slipped out the window, not thinking about the consequences of our decision. Um, about a half an hour later, we were at lunch when a group of very angry underclassmen showed up in the lunchroom. And uh, uh, a guy who was about 6'3", outweighed me by about 75 to 100 pounds, grabbed my shirt collar, jacked me up against the wall, and said, what did you do with them? I had not clearly thought about the consequences of my decisions at that moment in time and the 10-day detention that followed after that, you know. Um, but all of our choices end up in decisions, and our decisions end up with consequences. And this happens to all of us all the time. You know, sometimes we make a financial decision, and... Uh, sorry, nothing's working up here this morning. I think you're going to have to operate things back there for me, so... There we go. Every action has a consequence. So our financial decisions, you know, when we, when we buy something, when we spend money on something, how often do we think about the consequences of those decisions? You know, what's the consequence going to be of this decision a year from now, two years from now, three years from now? Sometimes we fail to think about that. We have this happen relationally. We say words that we don't think about. What is going to be the consequence of these words that come out of my mouth? And we regret and wish that there was some way we could grab them and bring them back in. This happens with our career. You know, a job opportunity comes up, a chance to move up the ladder, a chance to make more money, but it's going to move us away from family, going to move us away from a church community that's impactful in our lives. And we don't always think about what are the long-term implications of this choice that's followed by a decision that's followed by a consequence that we end up living with. It even happens with people in God. You know, I hear people talking to me about things that they blame God for, where it's really not God's responsibility. They made a choice, and with that choice comes a decision. But when it didn't go the way they wanted to, then all of a sudden it becomes God's fault. You know, what happens to people when they make these decisions? Most of the time we're, is it this one or this one? And we don't know the outcome, but every decision has an outcome. Have you ever known someone who just made bad decision after bad decision after bad decision? Probably have. Maybe that's been your story. Um, have you ever known someone who repeatedly made bad decisions and they, um, they didn't have any consequences that showed up? 
Why does life seem to go well for them? And they make these bad decisions. You know, you look at some athletes and they make poor decisions as an athlete and yet they get a new contract. Um, why is it? Why do self-absorbed people sometimes appear to never face the consequences for their actions? Um, well, this morning we're going to look at a story of an individual and what I'm going to suggest to you is that every choice results in an action. Every action has consequences and so choose wisely. Every choice results in an action. Every action has consequences, so choose wisely. And we're going to wrap up the story of a guy who is supposed to be Israel's superhero, the guy who is supposed to come in and save the day, and contrast him with the hero who did save the day. If you have your Bibles, if you would turn to Judges 16. Judges 16. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one in the rack that's in front of you, and that's page 204, or open the app on your phone and follow along. Judges 16. 16. As you're turning to Judges 16, let me just remind you a little bit about the story of the Judges. Judges is a story about people who God selected to provide deliverance from the people of Israel during the years of 1300 to 1000 BC. So there's this time frame, and God said uh, during this time frame, and they had come into the land that God had promised them. He promised Abraham years and years ago. And finally, they were in this place called the Promised Land. The land of promise. And when they came to this land, they had everything that they needed. And they came in this land, they said, as for me and my house, and everybody said it, we're going to serve God. He's the only one we're going to serve. But when they got in the land, they discovered a smorgasbord of options, a smorgasbord of religion, and a smorgasbord of ways of living life. And they decided, I want to taste and sample each one of these. And that's exactly what they did. They served the Baals, the Asherahs, the gods of Aram, Sidon, Moab, and the Ammonites, and the god of the Philistines. And what, they ha what would happen is that they would serve these gods. They would find themselves enslaved and abused and mistreated by the religious, by the leaders of these other communities. And then they would cry out to God and say, God, help us. God, deliver us. God, save us. And God would send a judge to do just that. But they would slowly drift away, and the cycle would happen again. And the cycle would happen again. And the cycle would happen again. And eventually, the people became a little bit like the frog in the kettle. They eventually, instead of crying out to God, thought to themselves, well, this really isn't that bad. There, there's not that much of a problem. You know, if I go to church twice a month instead of three times, is, is my life really going to change? It's not really going to change. I'm going to be okay. And if I spend some money buying these things for myself instead of giving this money to back to God, will I still have enough money to pay my bills? Will I be, yeah, I'll be okay. And they did that over and over and over again until eventually they just became okay with all of these other gods to the point that they stopped crying out to God for help. And by the time you get to the story of Samson that we're going to be in today, they stopped asking for help. They never said, God, help us. They never said it. But God knew they needed help, even though they didn't know they needed it. And so God provided Samson, this promised child, to this couple as one who would be the deliverer. He was going to take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines, but his arrival into manhood did not produce these results. And what we saw a couple weeks ago is we saw a man controlled by his emotions. And I said, if you follow your emotions, you're going to end up in a train wreck. And not if you feel emotions, not if you express your emotions. Those are all very, very critical for our relating healthy with one another. But if you follow that, if your emotions are the engine of your life, 
you're going to end up in a train wreck. And that's where Samson was headed. And then last week we saw that revenge leads you down a path of retaliation that leaves you isolated and alone. And we're going to see that fleshed out again this coming week. He was a man controlled by his emotions. He was a man who was sexually aggressive. He was a man who was overwhelmingly powerful, filled with revenge. He was an unstoppable force, but not for good, for selfish, revengeful motives. And so last week we left Samson in a cave saying, if I don't get something to drink, I'm going to die, kind of like a two or three-year-old. Miraculously, surprisingly, God gave him something to drink. And we're reminded that when we make a mess, God still shows up. When we make a mess, God still shows up. But at the end of chapter 15, there's this phrase that says, Samson judged in Israel for 20 years. And I read that part of the story, and I find myself scratching my head thinking, this is a guy that royally screwed up. He royally screwed up. And God still used him in the nation of Israel in a leadership capacity. I don't get that. I don't fully understand it. But that was Samson's story. And so that's where we're going to pick up in chapter 16, verse 1. So Samson is a judge. He's ruling in the land of Israel. And chapter 16, verse 1, it says, One day Samson went to Gaza, where he saw a prostitute. He went in to spend the night with her. Gaza is the furthest uh, northern city in the area that the Philistines ruled in. It was the furthest possible point in Philistia that he could go away from where he lived in Hebron. He went as far away as he could. And he went as far away as he could, and he found a woman, and he went in to spend the night with her. And once again, God's special member, messenger, is acting out on his sexual desires and getting and taking from a woman what he wants. A painful pattern to see in Samson's life. So Samson does this, and he goes in with her. And remember, Samson is public enemy number one. He's hated by the Philistines. And so word gets out that he is there. And so the people of Gaza were told, Samson is here. So they surrounded the place. They lay in wait all night. They said, when in the morning comes, we're going to kill him. We're going to kill him. So whatever house he was in, they're surrounded. Troops, I don't know, people, they're waiting, they're, we're going to kill him. There may have been a reward out for him. He was Philistia's most wanted man at that point in time. Um, and so when you think of a hero, and you think of them being trapped, right? You think of them being in a difficult situation. The enemy has surrounded them. You know, how will they get out? They will somehow either A, use their superpowers, or, or B, they'll find a way where there's a gap in the, in the wall, and they'll get out, they'll run, and they'll flee, and they'll be safe. They'll go back home where they will be safe. And you think that's kind of what a superhero would do. A little reconnaissance, figure out the best option, and navigate that. But not Samson. Not Samson. What does Samson do? Well, he stayed there till the middle of the night. That was actually probably a pretty smart thing to do. Maybe they got a little drowsy, a little divine-induced sleep. And then he got up and he took hold of the doors of the city gate, together with the two posts, tore them loose, bar and all. He lifted them to his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Now, when you read this story and you think of a door, what kind of a door do you think of? Probably something like that, right? When we think of doors, that's what we think of. But that's not what this kind of door was like. This was a door that was approximately 10 feet wide, which they know from 
archaeological records in another nearby town called Ashkelon. So it's about, it's about from my table over here, just outside my little box. I'm probably a little bit in the dark right now. So just outside. So that's how long this door was. But then another city nearby, the city of Ekron, they found a door that was nine feet thick. And so that's from here all the way back to about here. So we're looking at a door potentially 10 feet wide, 9 feet thick. In those days, they lived in walled cities, protect themselves from the enemy. There was one way in and one way out, city gates. And those gates were designed to be as thick and as solid as possible to protect the city. And so what does Samson do? He doesn't just find a way out of the city. He says, ah, maybe I'll just take the gates with me. Yanks the gates up, the posts up, and takes them. And then it says he went onto the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Now, we don't have any geographic orientation for, because we're not in Israel, but from Gaza to Hebron is 36 miles with a 3,200 elevation gain. 36 miles. He picks these doors up. Somehow, car, there's no mention of a donkey and a cart. There's no mention of that. You know, there's no mention of a group that's carrying these doors for him. This guy picked these things up, carted them 36 miles all through the night, and dropped them off there in Hebron. It's just hard to even wrap your mind around. The only picture I can imagine is the Incredible Hulk running away from something he destroyed and taking these big leaps and bounds. You know, that's the only picture in my mind that I can consider of someone doing something like this. I mean, imagine if you lived in Gaza and you woke up the next morning and you realized, oh, no, he dozed off. Where's Samson? Where's the gates? Who took the gates? You know, and you read the newspaper in a couple of days, gates for sale in Hebron, you know, and then, you know, that's what in the world? How did our gates end up in Hebron? I mean, think about this guy. He's killed a lion with his bare hands. He's wiped out 30 guys, killed 30 guys, stripped them buck naked to settle a bet he made, wiped out multiple groups of Philistines, caught 300 foxes, used them to burn down the crop, killed 1,000 Philistines with the jawbone of an ass, and now he carts the city gates 36 miles on his shoulders overnight. I mean, is there anything this guy can't do? Is there anything this guy can't do? And notice in this part of the story, in this miraculous event, it doesn't tell us that the Spirit of God was upon him. It doesn't tell us that, which it does throughout the story. So even though God's not showing up, there's this superhuman strength, this incredible power, but unbelievably low willpower, as evidenced in the very next verse. Because as Samson is doing all of this, Sometime later, he falls in love again with a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. We don't know much about Delilah. She's the only one in, woman in the story of the four women who's given a name, which points to her identity. Her name in Hebrew sounds very much like the word night in Hebrew, the evening. And so a woman of the night is maybe where her name came from. Why would a child be given that and they live with that? I don't know, but... Um, you know, when we think of the word Delilah today, when that word is used in our culture, it's not a very positive word. It's a word associated with uh, seduction and associated with sexual activity. Um, and so we don't know much about this woman. We really don't. But all we know is Samson is once again in love. Once again in love. And I kind of wonder if Delilah was a known possibly a known woman of the night, because it says in the next verse that the Philistines went to her, the rulers of the Philistines. Philistia was broken up into five regions, 
Each of those reasons had a governor. There was five of them, and so that's who the rulers of the Philistines were. They went to him, and they said, see if you can lure him into showing the secret of his great strength. They knew this guy was powerful. They knew he had strength. In those days, they believed a lot in witchcraft and magic, and they said, somehow he's getting this power. We don't know how, but we need you to find out how he's getting this power because we want to overpower him. And then look at this last phrase. They said, each of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. You say, what's 1,100 shekels of silver? Well, remember, there's five of them, right? Each one of us. So five times 1,100 equals what? A little math lesson here. What's it equal? 5,500, right? So 5,500 shekels of silver. The average annual income in that culture in that day was 10 shekels of silver. Okay? So they offered her 550 times her annual income to capture this guy. I mean, she signed on the dotted line. She's like, I'm selling him out in a heartbeat, you know? I mean, think about that. Your average income is $25,000. 550 times your average income, $15 million is what they offered to her. That's what they offered. Think about that. That's how much they wanted this guy. That's how much he was hated. They were after him. They were after him. And they knew that his weakness was women. And somehow he had this otherworldly type of magical power. Some commentators suggested that Samson was just kind of an ordinary guy. He wasn't a guy that stood out in the crowd. You know, he, wasn't, he didn't look like Thor or Roddy. You know, he didn't look like one of those two individuals. You know? He's just ordinary, like Tim. You know, I stand out because of my head, but Tim just, he just with the crowd. I stand out because of my red hair. But you know, he's just an ordinary guy. You're like, hey, and then, then he does these superhuman. They couldn't find him because he just fit in with everybody else. You think, how could they not find this guy if he's Thor? Like, well, he wasn't. You think he's just like everybody else. But they knew his weakness was women. They knew his weakness was women. So they paid her an outrageous amount of money. And so she starts turning up the heat. She says, tell me the secret of your great strength and how it happens. And then so Samson gives her this one. He says, seven fresh bowstrings never been dried. He said, let's start. You know, he gives her that one. Seven fresh bowstrings. So Samson dozes off. She goes to the Philistines, says, give me some bowstrings. They get bowstrings, tie them all up. And after they tied them all off, she said, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He snapped them as a string when you put it by a flame. So you put a string by a flame. What does it do? Whoop, right? Burns it just like that. And that's what Samson does. Snaps them in a heartbeat. So his secret is still intact. Second time around, she, she ratchets it up a little bit. She said, you made a fool. You lied to me. You lied to me. Tell me how this works. So Samson tried one. He's tried before. He said, new ropes, new ropes that have never been used. And if you remember from our story last week, that happened last week, right? Tied him up with new ropes. What does he do? He snaps them and kills a thousand men, the jawbone of an ass. Somehow that memo did not get to Delilah. The new rope trick doesn't work. It never got that one. And so what does she do? She says, the Philistines bring me some new ropes. They brought the new ropes. Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He snaps the rope as if they're what? Thread. Just a piece of thread, right? Take that button, twist it off. Piece of thread, snapped it. It's gone. It's gone. So she comes back at him again. She says, you are making a fool of me. 
You're lying to me. Tell me how you can be tied. And he says, if you weave the seven braids of my head in the fabric of my loom and tighten it with a pin, I'll become as weak as any other man. And you're like, oh no, that's a little close. The strings, the threads, the rope, all that stuff, that's okay. But now she's talking about his hair. Now it's getting a little dangerous. Now he's right on the edge once again. And so what does she do while he's sleeping? Took the seven braids of his head or of his hair, wove them into fabric, tightened it with the pin. Samson, they're here. He pulls the pin, the loom with the fabric, probably smashes it into pieces, and he's free. And she doesn't stop. She knows what the money pot is looking like at the other end. And so she keeps at it. And now she adds, how can you say I love you when you won't confide? This is the third time you made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your greatest strength. And look at this next verse. She says, with such nagging, she prodded him day after day until she was sick to death. He got nagged to death. This first place a guy got nagged to death. You know, it's the story of Samson and Delilah, you know. But she wouldn't let up every day. You don't love me. You don't, if you love me, you would share all of your deepest, darkest secrets. You would tell me everything in your heart. He's like, you don't want to know everything in my heart. You know, but he, she kept trying. She kept trying. She kept trying until he could not take it anymore. And then he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head. And notice what he says here. He says, because I've been a Nazarite dedicated to God. And I think to myself, Samson knew who he was. Samson knew that God had promised him to his parents. Samson knew that he was a child that was going to be blessed by God. Samson knew about these vows. But he broke them with touching the dead animals. He broke them over and over and over and over again. He's a guy with incredible promise, incredible potential, incredible opportunity. He knew it, and he just disregarded it. Why does someone do that? Why does someone do that? You know, why does an athlete with incredible potential use performance-enhancing drugs on his body? Why does an employee that does a great job lie and fudge a report so they can get a little bit ahead? Why? Why does someone do that? We're going to see that in just a moment. He said, if my head was shaved, my strength would leave and I would become as weak as any other man. And she knew in that moment, she knew she had him. She had him. She saw that he had told her everything. She sent word to the Philistines. She said, he's told me everything. We've got him. And by the way, make sure you bring the money. That's all she cared about. She didn't care about him. She just cared about the money. So this guy must have really been able to sleep. That's all I can say. I mean, he, he slept through getting tied up with ropes. He slept through getting tied up with new bowstrings. He slept through getting his head, hair weaved in a loom. And now he sleeps through his head being shaved. You know, it's, But as he began to have his head shaved, she began to subdue, subdue him in his strength left him and you're like this guy had such potential there's so much opportunity right there 
And he gave it all. He gave it all away. She called him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he woke up and, and he says, I'll just go out before. Clearly he realized his hair's gone. Never had his head shaved. Knows his hair is gone. He said, I'm just going to do what I did before. But this last verse, this last phrase, he didn't know that the Lord had left him. He didn't know that the Lord had left him. If you haven't been here with us the last couple weeks, as you read this story, and I'd encourage you to read it and go online and listen to the messages, when Samson was often about ready to perform these superhuman feats, it, said, it would say that the Spirit of God was upon him. The Spirit of God was upon him. The Spirit of God was upon him. And here it says the Spirit of God had left him. He was alone, and he didn't even know it. And the Philistines, they came in, they took advantage of him, and they seized him. They gorged out his eyes. They took him down to Gaza. They bound him with bronze shackles. They set him to grinding grain, the exact same, the exact same crop that he had destroyed with all the foxes. He's now taking the place of a mule, pushing a millstone, grinding grain, day after day after day. And what you discover about this tragic life is when we make selfish choices, we live with the consequences. We live with the consequences. And that's where Samson was at. But as you read the end of this story, there's this phrase that pops up and it says, but the hair on his head began to grow. And you're like, oh, what's going to happen? It's like when you watch all the credits of the Marvel movie and then you sit through the second ending, right? And you're like, oh, is there going to be another ending? And you sit through it some more wondering. And so you're left with this horrible, tragic thing. Of this guy with amazing promise, overwhelming potential to rescue God's people. And it's gone. It's gone. It's all been lost. He's blinded. He's shackled. He's taken the place of a mule. But remarkably, God's not done yet. And as you continue to read this story, what happens is the Philistines, they began to have a great celebration. And look what they said. They said, our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. So they're celebrating Dagon, the, the wheat God. And they said, our God has delivered the one who wasted our land and killed our men. Our God has delivered him in. And as they're having this great celebration, they bring Samson out to taunt him. And they bring him out and they said, bring him out so he can entertain him. And somehow he entertains him. We're not quite sure how. And they put him between these pillars. And he says to someone, put me where I can feel the support of the pillars. And then he does this. Then he calls out to God. It says there were 3,000 people watching this happen. He calls out to God. And you think, is there a redeeming moment? Is something going to happen that's going to turn this story around? How's God going to recover this one? Samson begins with these words, Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord. The word sovereign means the one who's in complete control. The God who's in complete control over everything that's taking place. And then he says this, Remember me. And the word remember in the when it's used in the Old Testament, it's not when we think of remember. When we think of remember, it's because we forgot. Do, does anybody remember where I put my keys? I can't remember where I laid my phone. You know, what, what is it that you can't remember? It's because you forgot. God doesn't forget. And so when the Hebrew word remember, zakar, is used, it means that God turns his face and then God acts on your behalf. 
when God remembered Hannah and she could not have a child, God turned his face and she gave birth to Samuel. When Rachel could not conceive, God turned his face and Rachel was able to give birth to Joseph. And so when God would remember, he would turn his face and he would act. And so Samson says, God, would you turn your face and would you act on my behalf? And there's almost a sense of, is somehow God going to redeem this? Did he finally get the message? Did he finally figure out, stop living for yourself and may... Do other people matter to you? You have this hope that maybe that's how the story will end. But then look at what Samson continues to say. He says, remember me. God, strengthen me. God, let me with one blow get what? Revenge for my two eyes. And you're like, oh. In spite of all of this, in spite of losing everything, this guy still hasn't figured out when life is all about you, it leads to a tragic end. In spite of this, what does God do? He gets his strength back. He puts his hand on the pillars, one on the right and one on the left. He says, let me die. He pushed down with all his might the temple and the rulers, and he killed more people in that day than his whole lifetime. It's a tragic end of a story of a man who pursued living life for himself. And it cost him dearly in the end. Samson's actions had consequences. And God allowed these consequences to occur to a guy who was completely self-absorbed in his life. And one of the lessons I think that comes out of the story of this last section of Samson's life is that when life is all about me, it's going to cost you dearly. When life is all about me, it's going to cost you dearly. You know, when life is all about your job, which is ultimately about you, it's going to cost you dearly. When life is always about your hobbies and your toys and your cabin in the woods, it's all about you. It's going to cost you dearly in the end. When that sin that you're hiding and trying to keep secret so that nobody finds out about, which is really all about you, it's going to cost you in the end. When you're living a life that's controlling, when you're self-protected, when you're trying to manage everything and make sure nothing bad happens, it's really all about you and your fears and your unwillingness to trust the God of the heavens. And it's going to cost you in the end. And when you're good at taking care of yourself and your family and never needing anyone, even God, it's really all about you. And it's going to cost you dearly in the end. So what's the alternative? What's the alternative to a life that's all about me? Well, there was another child whose birth was prophesied. There was another child who it was said would come and would provide hope and freedom and deliverance. And that child's life was not all about himself. And that child was Jesus. You see, when Jesus came, Jesus came not to live for himself. He says he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Paul describes it in this way when he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. In humility, value others. And he goes on to describe Jesus. He said, he made himself nothing. He took the nature of a servant. What does a servant do? Servant serves. It's all about others. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death. 
And as I thought about the story of Samson, I thought each one of us, every single day, have choices that we're going to make. Choices that result in actions, that result in decisions, or decisions that result in actions, that result in consequences. And each one of us has a choice. We can selfishly take. And that's what Samson did. Samson was all about taking. He was all about taking. He took whatever he wanted. He took the women that he wanted. He took revenge on people that did things to him. It was all about taking. Or we can selflessly serve. Selflessly serve. And it's a choice each one of us have to make. And as we wrap up this morning, I want to challenge you to say, is there one person in my life this week that I need to selflessly serve? I need to selflessly serve. And I want to challenge you not to make it someone that it's easy to serve. We all have people that it's easy to serve. They tell us thank you. They smile. They tell us how wonderful we are. You're so kind. You're so generous. You're so helpful. It's not those people. It's the people that never tell you thank you. And they're like, they don't even look at you. And you feel taken advantage of when you're just trying to do a kind thing. Um... That's the people Jesus served. That's the people he moved towards. That's the people he loved. And so the story of Samson is a painful reminder when life is about me, when it's all about me, where does it lead you? It's going to cost you dearly in the end. It cost him dearly. But Jesus invites us to a different way. He invites us to a different approach. He invites us in a way that's not about me, that says I'm willing to sacrifice and I'm willing to selflessly serve. And so who is that person for you this week? Is it a spouse? Is it one of your parents? Is it a sibling? Is it a coworker? Is it an employee? Is it someone in your small group? Is it just the total strangers you meet every single day this week? What would it look like to selflessly serve every total stranger you met this week? What would that be like? What would that be like? I'm going to invite you to bow your heads with me, and and as we do, I just want you to sit and think about that question. Who this week is God calling me to selflessly serve? Just take a moment as we prepare to close and sit with that question. You know, God, I think most of us would look at Samson's life and say, wow, what an incredible opportunity wasted. But most of us wouldn't see ourselves as being like Samson. But the truth is, all of us are made in this room for a divine purpose. And God has something He wants to do with our lives something unique, something remarkable, something that no one else could do. And God, when we make selfish choices, we walk directly away from the things that God wants to do in our lives. And so Lord, I pray this week that you would walk with us, 
that you would remind us about this guy named Samson. He had incredible potential. But he tossed it all aside. Tossed it all aside. And God, help us to see the ways in our lives where there's incredible potential for us to live out our unique divine purpose and calling and not choose to selflessly take, selfishly take, but to selflessly serve. God, as we wrap up this morning, we just bring our hearts to you. And um, we say, God, here's my heart. Here's my desires. I want to be used by you. I want to serve you. In your name.